Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MS Gym Podcast, where we give you the tools to live life by design, not by diagnosis. I'm your host, Brooke Slick. And in the last episode, I mentioned I might be popping on during our summer hiatus if I felt there was a story that needed to be shared. So here I am with just that. Um, recently, I had the opportunity to be part of a roundtable discussion that focused on how the medical history of yesterday affects the decisions of Black patients in the MS community today. At the table, we had neurologist Dr. Mitzi Joy Williams, aka Dr. Mitzi, who was recently part of the MS Gym Summit. Hopefully you got a chance to see that. MS advocate Damian Washington, who's also the creator of the YouTube vlog, No Stress MS, and MS advocate, blogger, and Instagram phenom, Jenna Green. Take a listen as Dr. Mitzi unpacks the complicated history of distrust for us. A couple of weeks ago, I had the absolute luxury of interviewing Dr. Mitzi Joy Williams, who's here with us today. And I did it for the MS Gym Summit. And her segment was about telemedicine. She just so happens to have been doing it for like over 10 years. And that's why she was chosen. But I research every single person that I interview. And in doing in my research, I found out that not only is she, you know, she knows what she's doing with telemedicine, she is a diversity and inclusion thought leader. She is all about making sure that her patients are educated about trials. And she also shared with me the fact that a person is not as likely to sign up for a trial. And quite frankly, they're not big on being treated medically at all. And uh, Dr. Mitzi, I, I was listening to you on a webinar within the last week, and you were being questioned about the same topic. And your interviewer asked you, you know, what's the reason for that? And in addition to, I think you had mentioned socioeconomic or, you know, transportation, things like that. The one thing that stuck out to me now, spoke to me in the interview two weeks ago, after the interview was over, you were kind enough to give me your time and answer a few questions. And you were kind enough to share with me a couple of things to read, one thing to read, uh, Medical Apartheid, which I did purchase on audio and I'm on the sixth chapter and wow, anybody who's listening, you must, must, must purchase this book. I think the paperback mm -hmm. is on, it's out of stock right now. So I think Audible is your only, only choice. The other thing which I haven't watched yet, but I'm going to, is on Netflix. It's a documentary called The 13th. So I'm yes. looking forward to, to listening to that. But when you say distrust, you didn't go into too much detail in that interview. And I thought to myself, I was actually glad because I want to go into detail about that mystery. And not just the history from your patients today, it's how your patients today, how we got here. How do we get to the point where a patient would be afraid to be part of a trial? I was part of a trial, the Galenia trial. Didn't work for me, but I was part of it. Didn't think twice about it. It was like, hell yeah, anything to fix me, I'll take it. 
Why would a black patient even question? Why wouldn't they do the exact same thing? Right. So that's a great question. And I think the key thing that you said is recognizing that these are things that have not just gotten here overnight, right? I think that what has been coming to the forefront over the past several months is that there are oftentimes two different experiences in America. There are experiences of people of certain ethnic minority groups and how we may interact with institutions. And then there are ways that the majority interacts with institutions. And so I think the first thing to recognize is that some of the institutions that are thought to be trustworthy, and in many cases can be trustworthy, um, in some of our experience growing up or in the experience of our parents or you know, our grandparents, those institutions were not seen as, as trustworthy as they may seem to the majority, you know, even when we talk about things like black parents having to talk with their kids about, you know, interactions with police, right? Um, and how we have also had many discussions about interactions with the medical system. When you think about a book like Medical Apartheid, it really sets up many of the thought processes um, that the science community has had towards black people, some of which are still pervasive. I still hear colleagues that talk about um, black people not having the same pain tolerance as other groups. And so it's very well recognized that black people are undertreated for pain um, because there's this concern or thought that they would be abusers of medication, even when they're in legitimate pain from things like surgeries and operations, et cetera. So I think, you know, we have to kind of look at the history to understand where we are and recognize that our interaction, our parents' interactions, our grandparents' interactions with some of these systems, the medical system, the justice system, have not always been just. And so it's kind of led to this pervasive kind of wariness, you know, and many of these things are coming to the forefront with books like Medical Apartheid, with the book about Henrietta Lacks, you know, understanding about the Tuskegee experiment. And it may not be that particular experiment or one particular experiment that people name as the reason that they may have some underlying trust, but it's kind of just the history, the collective history and the remembered history of all the things that have been ha that have happened in our families and others' interactions with the systems that have led to those outcomes. I think, you know, to add to that, it really is, I think the first step, which is what, what we talked about briefly after our um, uh, interview last week, was kind of what do you do? So the first step is educating yourself and having these uncomfortable conversations. You know, and I think there's something that all of us can learn. You know, I, certainly I have been having many uncomfortable or uh, conversations with some of my white friends and colleagues, but I also have conversations with um, my friends who are of other ethnic minorities. You know, um, I even had a conversation with someone about that Super Bowl performance, that there were things that I didn't pick up, you know, and I'm a black person, but I don't pick up everything that every minority identifies with. And I was like, Oh, that's what the, oh, okay, that's what that meant, you know what I mean? And so I think there are things we can learn from each other, but the first thing is to, number one, make sure that we're educating ourselves, and if we are in relationships with people, deepening those relationships. I have a lot of relationships with people who may consider me a friend but have never had a conversation with me about my experience as a Black person as I walk through this world, the experience of me, my husband, my son, my brothers, you know, kind of my thoughts and concerns concerns and fears, et cetera. You know, so, it, so when we have those connections, deepening those connections that we have, and that's the best place to start is from a place of understanding, trying to understand. You know, and, for, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, Damien. No, I, for, for some folk who might not know 
um, what folk are talking about when the, you know, the system is stacked against you or what Henry, Henrietta lacks or the Tuskegee experiment, the details about all that. If people don't have any of this detail that is built into certain people's culture, like mine, um, if you don't have this detail, where, what are we talking about, bro? I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, right. let, let, use let, the let, Google, my friends. The Google right. is your friend. <laughs> um, but what is the most interesting thing, though, is many people don't know about this history, Dr. Williams. I, could you, could you just say something? Could you just give me like two yeah. or three random things that have happened right. in medical history uh, to specifically right. African Americans? Um, that if you're not in the African American community, you might not have known was such a large part of it. Right. Absolutely. So a couple. So a couple things. I can think of several off the top of my head. Several. Um, you know, very famous examples. But even you know, I have been learning um, reading medical apartheid because you know, like I said, there are things that you know. There are things that your family kind of whispers to you, but you may not know the exact facts behind all of them. And so to me, it was very interesting how the medical community really contributed to many of the um, incorrect stereotypes of Black people, especially during the period of slavery. Um, where, you know, it was almost the medical system was almost used as a justification for slavery, you know, insinuating that the intelligence of Black people was not that of, you know, their white counterparts, that they needed to be taken care of and couldn't survive on their own. And that's why they needed to be enslaved. Um, and so it was very interesting how the medical community kind of backed up these things with research articles, which, you know, I, I don't know the validity. I mean, they could be valid, obviously. Um, and then if you think of kind of the two big examples that are in the forefront of people's minds, one is the Tuskegee experiment, um, which, you know, it, it's very interesting. There was a project actually called the Tuskegee Legacy Project, where they went around and surveyed, you know, a number of people, a number of white people, Black people, and Hispanic Latino people, and asked them what the Tuskegee experiment was and if it contributed to hesitancy to be involved in research. And interestingly enough, the majority of people didn't know what it was, okay? Um, you know, and so it was an experiment um, that was looking at syphilis. And so it started as an observational study. Observational meaning when we didn't have treatments for medications or treatments for conditions, um, what they used to do is observe how people did so you could find out what happened, what happened in the early stages, the middle stages, and the end stages. You know, the atrocity became is that during the course of the observational experiment, penicillin was invented or realized as the cure, and the cure was not offered. Okay, so it started as an observational study, which was something that was common, but once the cure became available, it was not offered. It, these people were observed until their death the majority of them without being treated, although a cure was available. So that was really an atrocity um, that people were continued to be observed and treatment was withheld. And then, of course, there's a story of Henrietta Lacks, who was a woman, a black woman, um, who had um, a very severe form of ovarian cancer, I believe. And so um, basically her cells um, were used to basically um, create many of the medical advances that we have and we enjoy today. Um, but unbeknownst to her family, her cells were replicated. They were sold for profit. 
um, and her family was not informed, right? And so there, there is this, you know, there are all kinds of experiments that were done on women who were enslaved without anesthesia to understand the female, um, you know, reproductive system. And so there's so many things, you know, it, it's very difficult to name. But again, all of these things have kind of led up to this thought of mistrust. And, and even there are things that have occurred in the 70s and 80s, right? So all of this is not like during slavery time, you know, um, but fortunately, the part that I try to convey is that the medical community has advanced, right? There are more people um, who are interested in real science now, and there are many protections that are in place, right? You know, and so now we have the reverse problem where, you know, people weren't involved because of many of the atrocities, but now that science has cleaned up its act, so to speak, to a certain extent, now we have a problem understanding how many of these diseases and conditions work or are processed in black people because everybody's been scared off from doing research. And so now we don't have people in the research studies to really help us understand how a disease, particularly like MS, um, may behave. We have research that suggests that MS is worse in black people, but we don't understand why because nobody's in the trials. And so now we're really trying to backtrack and say, okay, you know, educating people on how the scientific process works now, you know, there are review boards, ethical boards. I mean, you can't just go do a study on a person now, you know, I mean, there are lots of protections that are put into place. So how can we now re-educate and get people involved in the scientific process so that we can understand why we're seeing some of the poor outcomes we're seeing in this community? And as such, you, you're Black, you're a woman. So mm -hmm. you deal with, um, you are the leader and you're the medical leader. And so you have to sort of split this hair between yeah, I know history and sort of institutional <laughs> knowledge, but I also need to give the standard of care to uh, right. my patient and how to right. navigate that. And in a lot of ways, the, the adage of you have to get, you have to be twice as good to be, to get half as much um, uh, applies um, in, in the doctor sphere. And I, I mentioned your race and your gender because you have two mm -hmm. major things that you have um, that are factors in right. whether on 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 the the belief people have in what you have to say, the validity right. of such right. things, and you are dynamite. You you are <laughs> um, the beacon that many folk out here. Um, myself included, the folks down there um, mm -hmm. uh, can look to, to have information, right. to um, to have comfort just because they just see your face and they know mm -hmm. that not only does this person know everything about the disease or as much as one could know, this person sees me as a person. This person right. doesn't see me right. as a woman or a black right. guy or like whatever. Right. So you have a, a bunch of different jobs to do as a doctor. How do you manage right. that? Yeah, it's a lot. But I think that the key thing you said is is recognizing it, that recognizing the person sitting before you, recognizing that each person is unique 
they bring different experiences to the table. And, you know, it's interesting, but a lot of my job is kind of reading people, right? So I spend time getting to know people and that alters how I approach them in the way that we talk about treatment and the way that we talk about therapy. But the first thing is to recognize that is a person, right? That is dealing with something that's very difficult. And so how can I get through to them, whether they are black, whether they're white, whoever they are, right? And I think that that's what we have to get back to. That's what really medicine is all about. And I spend a lot of time educating people with MS because I want you to understand what's going on. I want you to know when you're getting uh, good care, know when you're not getting good care, so you move on to something else. But I also try to spend a lot of time med educating my other colleagues, right? There are a lot of these, you know, um, there are a lot of people that, um, may still have some of these ideas, you know, um, unfortunately that are negative towards certain communities. And also there are a lot of people that don't understand the data surrounding MS in minority communities. So I spend a lot of time educating, right? And I'm like, if I have to go door to door and spread the gospel, so to speak, and just talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, I'll do what I have to do. But there has to be a revolution on both sides because the other piece to that is okay, people have a hesitancy to be involved, but also based on other providers' experience, they may have certain biases and they may look at a person and say, well, that person is not gonna be compliant with this study anyway, so why should I ask them, right? So there has to be kind of a, 360, you know, kind of evaluation of the system and making sure that we're engaging and educating people on both sides to make sure we understand the issues and how to give the best care to everybody living with MS. Yeah, this resonates with me. That's why I'm sitting here like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's a lot of work, though. It's a lot of work. I had a young man yesterday. He was a little younger than you. And, you know, I had to give him my mama voice. I said, now, listen. Now listen. Then you come back to this next visit. Now listen. Don't you miss this next follow-up? You understand me? He said, "Yes, ma'am." I said, okay. "Yes, ma'am." Now we, we understand each other. You know yes, what I mean? So you know, so you relate to people where they are. We, we, all some... we all need that sometimes. Yeah. Exactly. So, what do you say to a patient who comes to you that you know you know that there's a drug out there that they're having a trial on? and you've studied the drug yourself, you know, and you think it'd be the perfect fit for one of your patients, and they just mm -hmm. are so hesitant, but you so, so wish they'd at least try it because maybe they're out of options. Maybe they've tried mm -hmm. all the other drugs and this truly could be, you know, a beacon of hope for them. How do you, right. uh, how do you it's speak to them, what do you say? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to, number one, um, I try to educate people on the research process, right? So kind of how it works, what are the stages of research? What stage are we in? Most of the time, by the time someone enrolls in a trial in the clinic, it's in a phase three trial. So the big trials where they've done smaller ones, we understand for the most part kind of how it works. We understand some of the side effects and these are larger trials to make sure that it still works and that we understand the side effects. So I try to educate people about the research process. Oftentimes I like to give people time to think, right? So I used to kind of want people to make snap decisions, right? You know, while I have you here, I better get you to make a decision or you might not come back. But now I spend a lot more time giving people time to think. So I often will give somebody materials. 
I will send them home with those materials or give them the information, let them review it with their family. I will encourage them to bring a family member back with them. There often is a decision maker. You know, there might be a medical person in the family that helps make decisions. There might be a parent that is very influential in decision making. So I encourage them to bring that person into the process, whether they can bring them back for a visit or whether we call them on the phone and FaceTime. And give the opportunity to ask those questions. And oftentimes that's very helpful. You know, the bottom line is that, you know, clinical trials are not for everybody, right? And I definitely recognize as a scientist at the end of the day that there can be serious side effects, you know? And so I don't in any way want to force or feel like I'm forcing anyone. My goal is to give you your options. I tell you what my professional opinion is, and then we come to a decision together. If that is not the right thing for you, then it's just not, okay? But the other thing that I do encourage people to do is recognize that there is a way for all of us to be involved in the research process. So even if it's not a clinical trial, right, maybe we can do a survey, maybe we can do a registry, maybe we can do something involving exercise or diet, right? There's some way for all of us to contribute to the body of knowledge, even if a clinical trial is not the right thing for you. But there's so, there's just so many different things. And again, like you're, one has to do so much to be a standout in their profession as a woman, as an African-American, as a fill in the blank. And because of that, or what are, so you, you, you give the same standard of care to folk. Like you mean, you said that you give them more room to speak. You kind of give them extra nudges because you know that they might um, be apprehensive. Is there anything else that you do as a neurologist and as a black woman that you would do to um, offer care to somebody dealing with MS? Because MS is a nightmare and a crazy ride. So help mm -hmm. me not. I mean, honestly, I I educate. That is my job. My job is to be an educator. Like I wouldn't, I never would send anyone home with four pamphlets about medications and tell them to pick. You know, no no shade on anyone else, but that's just not how I do. And I talk to people like they're intelligent. I tell people about research. I draw very horrible graphs because I'm not an artist. I draw my little T cells and B cells and I try to explain it to you to the best of my ability, right? Because the goal is for everyone to understand, right? Because if we understand, we can make informed decisions. And I do that for everyone, you know? And so I think that, you know, the most important thing, and we touched a little bit on health disparities, there are a lot of disparities, you know, not just in MS, across all areas of medicine. Um, and that's too much to unpack in two or three minutes, you know, but I think that, again, when we look at our own circles, we look and see how we can advocate for the people within our own circles. With MS, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, the outcomes are poorer in African-Americans. Um, we know that people are can be in wheelchairs earlier. They have more MRI lesions. Some of that is access to care. Um, some of that is bias on the care of the medical system. Some of that is delay in diagnosis, you know, because people still think that Black people don't get MS, right? You know, so I think that, you know, the main thing that I can do is try to educate people, help them understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, um, so that when we come up with a plan together, they hopefully will stick with it. And if they're having problems, then let me know so that we mm -hmm. can move or transition to something else. So that's my job. 
you know, and I really appreciate all of you advocating in your different spheres and all the amazing work that you do and even inviting me here to have this conversation with you guys because it shows that you're willing to dig in and do the work, you know, and so it's not enough for people to hear it from me. I, one of the first things I tell anyone um, that I diagnose is to get connected with the MS community because no one else can understand MS like you guys can, right? So I understand it from a perspective of seeing people, but I don't understand what it's like to live with it. And you all who are such amazing lights can offer hope to many people, you know, especially when they're first diagnosed where they may, you know, not know that they can make it or may not feel like they can make it with this disease. So I appreciate all of you for all the amazing work that you do. Thank you. I'm feeling very privileged today. It has all <laughs> to do about having the three of you and the four of us all together. The fact that you guys took your time to come together for this, I really appreciate it. And Dr. Mitzi, I, I could, I could pick your brain for hours. Um, but <laughs> but uh, Damien, you have any parting words? Jenna? No, look, I'm about to throw it to Jay. Um, you know what, you throw it, you do it, Jay. Say something. All right, uh, well, you know, I am an advocate, which is apparently the ability to never shut up. That's that's how you define advocate. <laughs> My mom was like, wow, okay. Who knew that that was a thing? I thought that that was a detriment. Um, but, you know, I think that's, that's the thing is that we have to empathize with each other, continue to connect with each other. Because like Damien and I have said a hundred times, MS, MS sucks. But the MS community is priceless. This conversation with all of you all has been such a gift in my life. And I mean, I can't tell you that MS was a gift in my life, but the people that it has brought into my life have been true gifts. And, um, you know, the education, the, um, you know, the worksheets on unpacking your own bias, the, the, the surveys that you could even get paid to do surveys to share about how your fatigue is affected and, you know, your bladder issues and things. And, Experience without actually having to take a new medication those are out there so I encourage everyone please understand that you are valuable that your impact is important your voice is important and we want to just keep hearing from from you all so thank you all so much for having me today quite a pleasure for more information on the MS gym you can find them on Facebook Instagram or at themsgym.com if you'd like to know what I've been up to lately, you can catch me at brookslick.com. We'll see you on the next episode.